We've been going through Solomon and calling it the God pursuit, and we're going to be spending time at the end of our message just waiting on God again. We're going after him with all of our hearts, and this was Solomon in the first part of his life. And today we get to chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Chronicles. We've been in 1 Kings because both 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles tell the story of King Solomon, although although we see some details in one of those accounts that we don't see in the other. And I wanted to come to 2 Chronicles. Chapters 3 and 4 we normally would skip over in our Bible reading unless you really like HGTV because it's uh, measurements, it's walls, it's furnishings, it's interior decorating. And it's not the most inspiring part of, of Scripture, let alone Solomon's life. But here's how chapter 3 starts of Second Chronicles. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, and where the Lord also had appeared many years earlier to Abraham. Mount Moriah, right there in Jerusalem, the highest peak in the city of Jerusalem, the, the location of the present Temple Mount today in Jerusalem. And it's there that Solomon began to build the temple. And the obvious question is, well, why should we care? This was almost 3,000 years ago, and there is no temple there anymore. So why should we care? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, gives us the first hint as to why we should care. Because the New Testament, now, in our lives in Jesus, we sang great testimony songs this morning in worship saying this is what God has done in my life. Here's how how God looks at my life. This is what he's doing in me. Pastor Josh prayed, God let your love flow through us. So so all of this Jesus-centered life in the New Testament interestingly is built around this idea that now we are the temple. We're the temple. It's not a physical building, but we're the temple. In fact, these bodies right here Your body, my body, I don't know what you think about your body, but God thinks your body is a pretty wonderful thing for this reason. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. So I've got to connect dots. I've got to know that the building of a literal physical temple in the Old Testament is going to have principles and design parameters that point to what would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus and in your life and mine if we walk with Jesus. He said, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The Holy Spirit. This is not true of your pets. This is not true of the animal kingdom, but it is true of human beings. We uniquely have been created to to tabernacle, to sanctuary, or to temple the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That is stunning to me. Who is in you? He's not just kind of walking beside you. He's in you, whom you've received from God. He said, don't you know this? For you are not your own body, soul, spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. That's a reference to what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood to purchase, to rescue you and I from the kingdoms of Satan. You were bought with a price. That means you, your body belongs to God. Therefore, 
honor God with your bodies. And in the previous verses, he's been saying that's one of the reasons that we keep sexual activity to within marriage, between a husband and a wife, because sexual activity, the way you use your body outside of covenant with each other, somehow violates deeply God's design purpose. Because your body isn't just like any other animal. Your body is holy, your body's been bought with a price, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then from your body to, you'll notice there's a few other bodies in this room, from your body to others, then the church as a whole. Ephesians chapter 2, this is, I love this description of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, 21, again, this new reality that in Jesus were his church. Uh, in him, Jesus, the whole building is joined together. Speaking of Christ's living church, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy what? Temple. We become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. Peter, elsewhere in the New Testament, would call each of us like living stones in God's bigger temple. We're built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's what temples are. They're places of God's presence. And we together are something that cannot be said about the company you work for. Whatever corporation or company or school you work for, whatever homeowners association you're a part of, it cannot be said of that organization what is uniquely said about the church. Your homeowners association is not the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He may live in you because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you may therefore influence, but the company you work for, the company you own and that you run, the school you teach in or you study in is not the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He's called one thing and one thing only on the earth. It's his living church, people forgiven by his blood. We together, not only are our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit, but we together Make a house in which God uniquely dwells in the earth. That's why it's so important for us to come together when we do and worship and make place for the presence of God among us. So, so th this is why what Solomon is about to do in building the Old Testament temple, it, it just has things for us because God has in mind uh, when, when he was helping Solomon build the temple, he has in mind things for you and me. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our life together as a church. We're at the place where God's spirit dwells because we're also a holy temple. So I want to talk about a plan that we'll see here in Second Chronicles 3 and a presence and a partition. Those three things are what are going to unfold for us and, and may illustrate how we, when we get to our Bible reading and we come to chapters 3 and 4 and we just tempted to skip over them, here are some things we can look for. First of all, the plan. There was a plan. Verse 3 of Second Chronicles. Verse 1 says he began to build the temple. Now verse 3, these are the dimensions that Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God. It was 90 feet long, the temple, its primary footprint, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, uh, running across the entire width of the temple, 
and 30 feet high. So the temple was about three stories high, about 30 feet wide, and about 90 feet long. It wasn't really a huge building. But, but it was a magnificent building. And it said he overlaid the inside with pure gold. That's one way to decorate your house. So here's an artist's rendition of Solomon's temple. About three stories high, and there's a cutaway. You can see there in the, in the back is the most important room, and we'll be talking about that. And then on the very outside, you have a court, courtyard, and then you have inside the temple the holy place. And notice it's totally covered with gold, and there's all kinds of inscriptions and, and, and artistic work that, that Solomon describes right here in, in chapter 3. Uh, and, and also, in the very back is what they call the Holy of Holies. And the amazing thing about the temple is that, is that anybody could come into the courtyards, but the closer you got to that central place at the very back of the temple, which everything else points to, the fewer the people that could go there. But that was the place where God would set his presence. Because what does the temple do? It's where God's presence dwells, the temple. And so that's, that's the plan. And there's some similarities here to this temple, to, to the tabernacle or the tent that Moses built that Israel took with them through their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. But to come up with something like that, you need a plan. You need a plan. And interestingly, it wasn't Solomon's plan. It was his father's plan because his father really wanted to build this temple. And God wouldn't let him. But God did something amazing to allow David to, in specific detail, lay out everything you see. And Solomon's just building by the plan. Just like God's got a plan for the building of our own lives. And so if you go back into 1 Chronicles 28, he, David, verse 12, he, David, gave Solomon the plans of all that... The Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God, and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. So, so the Spirit of God had put in David's mind this plan. David could sort of see it. Like when, uh, when Disneyland was opened and Walt Disney had passed away and, and a guy was an engineer was standing by his wife and said to Walt Disney's wife, oh, I wish, I wish Walt was here to see it. And she said, oh, no, he did see it. He saw it all. He had the vision. He saw the mind. He wrote the plan. And, and this is exactly what David did. And, and in verse 19 of 1 Chronicles 28 is, 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 is what I think is an absolutely amazing verse. All this, David said, all this plan I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me. And he enabled me to understand all the details of the plan. And I don't want to re-preach last Sunday where we talked about the different dimensions of God's wisdom that he gives to us. But I just think that's a verse that you could claim for your company. I just think that's a verse that you could claim for the classroom you teach every day. I think that's a verse you could claim for your homework assignments. I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me I have all of this, and he enabled me to understand all the details of the plan. 
Because God is very concerned what he's building in your life. And he has a plan. He's very concerned about your calling and you fulfilling it in the workplace, in, in, in the marketplace, in, in whatever ministry God's given you. He has this. And I love this verse. I put it in my book on leadership, in fact, and talked about it. This is, this is amazing. David, because I have in writing all the details of the plan because God's hand was on me. And I look at the incredible giftedness of so many of you. I'm, I'm blown away by the talents and the callings and, and, and the kind of things so many of you have accomplished in your life and, and, and are accomplishing even in younger years. And, and I just know God's put his hand on you. And, and there are details to the plan that, that God's giving you out of his great wisdom. But without re-preaching last week, I want to talk about the plan, first of all, if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit individually, but what's God's plan for your spiritual life? And I just believe God has a plan for growing your temple. It's a growing your spiritual life. And let me go through these really quickly, but, but here are three things I always think about when it comes to growing my spiritual life. First of all, no one can do your growing for you. You hear me say that a lot. No one can, can do you're growing for you. You have to take responsibility, responsibility for your spiritual growth. Now, I've told you, some of you before, uh, of a lady years ago who sat in my office and said, Pastor, I would be a better Christian if you were a better pastor. And you know what? She was partly right. And I'm painfully aware of how accountable I am to God to do the best I can to feed and to lead because I realize that does affect people spiritually. And I, I want to do it well because a lot is at stake eternally. So she looks at me and says, I'd be a better Christian if you were a better pastor. And I'm painfully aware of how some pastors are just really great at things that I'm just not. And, 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 and that grieves my heart, but it's just the way God made me, I guess, that I'm still trying hard to grow and to learn at this. But in another way, she was not only terribly right, painfully right, but she was painfully wrong. Because whenever I say to somebody else who I can't control, I mean, she wanted me to have fundamentally a different personality. She wanted me to be able to preach like her favorite preacher. And I just don't have the voice or the talent for it. She would, she was, she was hinging her personal spiritual condition on something that she could not change in me. That left her powerless. And when you put yourself in the place of a victim, you're always powerless. And when you feel powerless, you start dreaming up all kinds of strange things and you start excusing yourselves from the things that only you can do. And, and I know that I affect your spiritual health as a pastor, but at some level, bottom line, you've got to own your own spiritual growth. I mean, I can't fast and pray for you. I can't be hungry for God for you. I can't learn to meditate on Scripture so that I develop an ear for the voice of the Holy Spirit. I cannot do that for you. I can challenge you to do it. I can teach you how to do it, but I can't do it for you. And at some point, nobody can do your spiritual growth. God's got a plan unique for you for the next steps in your spiritual growth. And part of that plan will involve what we call spiritual disciplines. 
And dis, the word discipline makes us feel guilty, like all the time. So I don't want you to trip over that. But spiritual disciplines. Here's what I think here. Spiritual disciplines are doorways to God's presence. They're not duties just to be ticked off, just to be checked off. And I used to really, you know, spiritual discipline. Oh, I don't pray enough. Don't read my Bible enough. I don't do this enough. I don't do that enough. I would not live with the joy of the Lord. I live with all this pressure like I got to get everything right in my life. Listen, the heart of the Christian life is not pressure to check check off all the boxes. The heart of the Christian life is being connected to the life of Jesus. And because he died and rose again, some things in our lives can be dead and killed and put away. Other things, new things live. I become new. I'm not just forgiven because of the gospel and because of Jesus. I'm actually being transformed by the life of Jesus. And and just constantly being preoccupied with, am I checking off all the right boxes and making spiritual disciplines like prayer or duties? You know, okay, I prayed 20 minutes. Now I feel better about my day and maybe God will give me some brownie points. No, the point of the spiritual disciplines is not checking off the boxes. It's not feeling less guilty as a result. The whole point is being connected to the life of Jesus. That's the heart of the Christian life. I don't live this in my own strength. I live it because, I'm, because of God's presence, because of all these things we sung about this morning. I'm alive, I'm walking, I'm breathing. Why? Because of him. We didn't sing, I'm alive and I'm breathing and I'm walking today because I got everything right this past week. We're said, hallelujah, it's because he is alive in me. And so the spiritual disciplines Don't become fodder for just feeling guilty because we always fall short. But we develop a new love for fasting and for praying and for being in God's word because they are doorways to God's presence. We're just hungry for him. And then I also want to say, not only can no one else do your your growing for you, and it is going to involve you Laying hold of spiritual disciplines, the disciplines of Sabbath and solitude, the disciplines of meditation and prayer, the disciplines of Bible study, and, and, and the disciplines of fasting, and all of these spiritual disciplines, um, transform them into doorways of God. Let them just become expressions of your desire to be connected to the life of Jesus. That's the heart of it all. But, but also realize that a goal without a plan is just a wish. You know? And, and hoping isn't a strategy. Wishing something will come true is not a strategy. So a goal without a plan is a wish. And I know you've probably taken that out of your management courses at work. But a goal, it's so true. A goal without a plan is just simply a wish. And wishes have no next steps. So I want to challenge you in the building of the temple of the Holy Spirit that God's involved in in your life that requires... God's power and spirit dwelling in your life. The life of Jesus living through you and out of you. All starting with Jesus' life. I encourage you to have a plan. And you know you have a plan when you know what the next step is. And do not write a five-page plan. But I've just felt in my heart this morning as we watch the construction of this ancient temple. That the construction of our spiritual lives, the construction of our lives as the temple of the Holy Spirit will involve a plan, and plans require next steps. And, and don't write a five-page plan. 
that was just overwhelming. That, you know, if you're barely praying five minutes a day, don't say, I'm going to start one hour a day. I'm sure you're going to fail at that. But take whatever you're doing and add a next step or two. Maybe for the rest of this year. Maybe there's two more steps you want to take in your spiritual life. But I want to tell you, if you don't have a plan, you may have a goal to grow spiritually this year, but unless you have a plan that defines a next step in connecting more with the life of Jesus, you, you know what? It's just going to be a pipe dream, and, and nothing's going to happen. We just need to go. May I just say, and I'm going to really sound like a pastor or preacher here, but may I just say, in a world where, especially post-pandemic, We've gotten in a habit of maybe attending church and worshiping with the body of Christ once or twice a week, a month, once or twice a month. Maybe your plan would be, I'm going to do what I can to up, up that to at least two or three times a month, or maybe three or four. I mean, it's one, thing to, it's one thing to boycott church, and it's just easier that way, or at least watch it on a screen. And I understand why some people have to stay home. But you know what? You need you need to be reinforcing your spiritual life in every kind of way. One of the spiritual disciplines is, is being engaged in corporate worship where you've got people around you who are just stirring you on. I'll walk out of services and I'll have felt the fire in your heart as a worshiper. And in isolation, I don't feel that. But, but together with all of you, I mean, this just builds up this reinforce because everything else in my world is exposing me to the spirit of the world not the spirit of Jesus and th there I'm sure is a next step it may even just be trying to be in a worship service three or four times a month instead of one or two times but whatever it is take another step have a plan that defines for you the next step in the building of your spiritual life as a temple of God I just want to challenge I can't do this for you I'll probably not always know if you do this, but I just, this is our responsibility. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are. Jesus' life in you. And, and there's a plan for the next steps in your spiritual growth. Really quickly, uh, there's a plan for the strengthening of our church life too. And the, uh, fear not, I'm spending most of the message time on this one, on the plan part and uh, and but just stick with me another moment. Strengthening our church life. If you go into our lobby, you'll see our five core values. You can read about them. You can see them pictured. And they start with having hungry hearts. This is, this is why, because we want to be people. We want to be a place where the presence of God is among us. If God's presence is in here, let's shut the doors. Let's shut down this operation. If Jesus isn't the life working in us, I have no interest and I have no ego need to be a pastor if Jesus isn't in our midst and his presence isn't moving and our hearts are not hungry for him. I hope your hearts aren't hungry for just entertainment. I hope your hearts are hungry for God. And, and attentive eyes. This is part of God's plan for building our church, that we're full of people who notice each other, but we don't notice each other in the ways the world does. We notice each other with the eyes of Jesus. You know, we just don't bolt out of here when we're done. We, we notice each other. I had a first-time guest say to me a few weeks ago, I came to Central for the very first time the other Sunday, and she didn't know, I guess she was counting, actually. She said, eight people came up to me and started talking to me and made me feel so welcome, eight people. I also know at times in our history, we've had people say, I came and everybody ignored me. <laughs> Nobody said a word to me. But we're changing that culture. Uh, 
Because we have a tent of eyes. Because we're, Jesus, we're his temple, his spirit's in us. And so we're going to be doing exactly what Pastor Josh was leading us in prayer about. And then linked arms. We're going to do this together. Uh, you know, we're ministering together. Hope you don't mind me saying, honey, but my wife down here is starting second service today. She's starting as a volunteer in the preschool department. Hallelujah. And she's kind of worrying out loud about, hmm, what do I have to do today? But fortunately, fortunately, she's, she's going to be on a team uh, led by Tiffany Hartley. What an amazing lady who leads our, our preschool. And you, you know, it's been very tough. Most churches are finding a terrible time to re-enlist volunteers post-pandemic. But you know what? If you do enlist, you're going to be on a team. You're not going to be out there alone. We just believe in the power of with. We're the body of Christ. So we do this together. Together we're the sanctuary of God's presence. And then open hands. We don't look like this, just holding stuff to ourselves. We live like this, open-handed to our world. And then we want to leave a God-sized footprint, like our footprint focus, and the burrs in Africa this morning, and you giving money to keep them on the ground over there to our footprint fund every month. And th- th- this is just, we, we're just going to make a difference. We want to make a generational footprint, a global footprint. This is God's plan for his church corporately to be the temple of the Holy Spirit where, where he is. And it all goes back to having hungry hearts and then attentivized and linked arms and open hands and leaving a God-sized footprint. So that's the plan. Now I want to see what Paul, uh, go in, first, in Second Chronicles 3, the same chapter, and now verse 8, God's presence. God's presence. He's going to talk about the dwelling place of God's presence. In verse 8, he made the most holy place, or sometimes we call this the holy of holies. He made it 30 feet wide corresponding to the width of the temple and 30 feet deep. So this, remember that, that area right in the back of that cutout picture of the temple? Right in the back, it was 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. And he overlaid, get this, he overlaid its interior with 23 tons of gold. And he made two figures shaped like cherubim. Cherubim were like the highest order angels, and they had wings. Thirty, two cherubim, and they were always associated with the presence of God. He made two figures shaped like cherubim, overlaid them with gold, and placed them in the most holy place. And we're told in quite a bit of detail that each cherubim had wings that were seven and a half feet long, wingspan. So... Two wings for each chairman, that's 15-foot wingspan. And then the two of them together were told that 30 feet wide, remember? So that the cherubim, one wing touched one wall, one wing touched the other wall, and in the middle of the two wings met right here. And then under the two wings where they met in the middle came the other symbol of the presence of God. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Then the priest carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. And so this presence, that symbol, the covenant, the relationship with God, the ark, the symbol of this relationship with God. We don't have an ark anymore, just like we don't have a literal temple anymore. We're the temple, and our ark is the cross. That's the symbol 
that God is now with us. But this was a symbol of the presence of God. And in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, then the temple that, oh, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7 first, then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. In verse 13, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Once in a while when we've had services with the power of God's just been here powerfully, Sandy will say to me, yeah, yeah, the, the cloud was there today. <laughs> the cloud of God's presence, his awesome presence came and filled. Listen, there is nothing that the inner sanctuary of our hearts needs more than the presence and power of, our, of God. There's nothing. You are made for the presence of God. And you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were designed for this. You may not feel that mystical or that emotional. That's not what we're talking about. But you were made for the glory and presence of God. And his church was created to sanctuary the presence and the glory of God. There's nothing that the inner sanctuary of our hearts or our church needs more than the presence and power of God. And the problem is that there's a partition and you could just jump over, in, in back to chapter three, you could jump over this, you could almost not notice it, but it's so consequential. Verse 14, across the entrance of the most holy place, he hung a curtain made of fine linen, decorated with blue and purple and scarlet thread and embroidered with figures of the cherubim. So this beautiful, this beautiful thick curtain, and it's across the front of that back holy of holies, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, with the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, both of them symbols of the presence of God, where God's glory came in the midst. And he hung that curtain, and it was a partition. It was a message that that God's presence at that point was not available, that the average person couldn't come. In fact, only one person, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement could become behind that curtain. But look what the gospel writers, like Matthew, for instance, and Mark and Luke will say the same thing. Jesus is hanging on the cross, Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The bottom to top, that might meant we did it. But no, top to bottom. God, when Jesus died, when his body was broken, the barrier to his presence was torn in half. And the earth shook, Matthew adds, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and Bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. It's like resurrection power. The power of God just started breaking out already, even though Jesus wouldn't rise for three days. It just, I mean, life just started breaking out because finally the holy of holies, the very heart of the presence of God has been opened up to us because Jesus died for our sin. Our sin, that veil represented our sin and everything that separates us from us, separates us from him but Jesus bore our sin. Jesus tore the curtain because Jesus has opened up the way to God's presence and he invites us in.